0: If you would open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, second book of the Bible. For those of you who are visiting, or this may be your first time, we're uh, in the middle of a study on the Ten Commandments, uh, going through the law, um, and uh, we've arrived there uh with the people of God, uh, we've been redeemed out of Egypt. And so uh, with that in mind, uh, let's read the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Exodus twenty fifteen: You shall not steal. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray and ask the Lord for help. Father, thank you for this, your word. It is convicting. But Lord, it's also light and life. It tells the truth to us. Or during this time, would your spirit be at work pointing us to Christ and the true inheritance that we have in you that would satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. Lord, let us fly to him in faith, and we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Love God. That's the way Jesus summarized the first and greatest commandment in the first table of the law. Love God. Love him with all your heart, with all your soul with all your mind, with all your strength. Love him with all that you are. The force of the law, the summary of it, is love. The second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor. Love him not as you desire. Love your neighbor as you would like to, but love him as you would want to be treated yourself, the way that you want to receive love. Give it in that way. So Jesus summarized all the law and the prophets, love. We come now to the Eighth Commandment. Clearly falls under love of neighbor, but as with all the commandments, we see it's a, it's a domino in a line. And when those dominoes begin to, to topple, they all fall down all the way back to the, to the first one. No other gods. Again, we're going to see that this commandment has this narrow application. Demiron's illustration of a candy bar from a store, mine's going to be or is a, a pencil from a neighbor's desk at school when you forgot yours. That's not personal experience or anything. Today's commandment comes in two words. Loganah. And again, it's, it's, uh, I present it that way for you to understand that it's just short and sweet. And it just sounds so simple, and, and you're like, man, I got this one. I'm not a thief. Are there larger implications to this? Is it bigger than just, uh oh, I don't have my pen and we have a test? Uh, you you spitball somebody across the room; their attention's misdirected. You grab their pen. Suddenly, you have a pen, and your boy doesn't. Is that it? As we've seen, the uh, Westminster Standards are really helpful here. Uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism uh, asks, "What are the duties required in this commandment?" And just listen to some of these. This is not what you're not to do. We're going to get there in just a minute. This is what you are to do. So each command bears the weight of positive action. Here we go. Truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce. This requires giving others what they are due rightly. This requires the restoring of property when it has been unlawfully and unjustly taken from the rightful owner. This requires when we are able to give and lend freely, we do so. This requires a contribution with our own lives and wealth to the needs of others. It requires a moderation of ourselves concerning judgments, wills, and our affections toward worldly goods. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. Diligence toward our lawful calling. In other words, be good at your job. Something embedded in the Eighth Commandment tells us, be good at your job. Work hard for the glory of the Lord. Not doing so is stealing not only from others this way, but as we heard earlier, also from the Lord. Be frugal and avoid unnecessary lawsuits. And by all lawful means of your life and vocation, help others in their financial life as well as yourself. These are obligated to us in this simple command, you shall not steal. It's a huge expansion. So what does it forbid? What is forbidden here? It says this, theft, robbery, man-stealing. That is, viewing human beings as property. The institution of chattel slavery is embedded in this commandment as restricted, off-limit sin by God. Theft, robbery, man-stealing, or receiving anything that is stolen. Commit no fraud in our dealings with others. False weights and measures and moving of landmarks. Trying to get a little more, squeeze a little more out, lift the scale, put your thumb on the scale, make your estate bigger than it is, just just by a little bit. It's off-limits. Injustice in contracts with others, including oppression, extortion, usury, bribery, lawsuits, unjust enclosures, inflating prices. All unlawful ways of making money are forbidden in this commandment. Unjust or sinfully withholding from our neighbor what belongs to them. Covetousness. Letting worldly goods be prized in the heart. It's restricted by the Eighth Commandment. Distrust or uh, distracting care and gaining goods for ourselves. Hoarding of things for our own pleasure. Envy of the property of others, wasting time, wasting resources. Lastly, that says, unduly prejudice our own outward estate, defrauding ourselves of the due use and comfort of the estate which God has given to us. This last one's real interesting. Prejudicing our own estate, saying, hey, this is mine. This is mine. This stuff is mine, and I'm going to view it as as higher and better than yours. And it says, actually, what you're doing is you're saying that your stuff is higher and better than what belongs to God. This commandment is expansive. It's huge. We don't have time to deal with all of it, but we want to get some groundwork laid. First, we're going to see that all things are God's possession. In what way is this an offense against God? To steal is, is essentially stealing from him. Whether it be glory or taking something from a neighbor, you're saying something about God. We're going to look at a couple of case studies, and then we're going to have our minds and hopefully our hearts pointed to our heavenly inheritance. So what is our view of stuff? Stuff. Stuff. I'm admittedly not the biggest Veggie. Tale. I'm not trying to step on toes. I am not the biggest veggie Tale fan out there. But my kids are of the age that when uh, they were little, it was all the rage. You couldn't live life without encountering some VeggieTales uh, movie somewhere. And one that I just can't, so some of these things get in you and they creep around in your brain and you just can't get them out. And one of those things for me was Madame Blueberry and Stuff Mart. Do y'all know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one who's ever seen Madame Blueberry and Stuff Mart? Please tell me I'm not. I was hoping this would really land on you. Okay. So, <laughs> S- Stuff Mart. Madame Blueberry goes, and it, it's just she can't get enough stuff. It's a huge storefront, right? And they're offering all these goods, and right behind it is a factory. The factory is cranking out the goods. They're coming into the, to the storefront. Madam Blueberry is being walked around with a host of people showing her all these goods, and she's buying all this stuff. And it shows this, it backs up from the scene and shows from factory to store to Madam Blueberry, and there's just a long line of carts that go right to her house. Dun, 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 dun. Stuff marked. Stuff Mart. Okay. They say this. There, there's this line. What we've mentioned are only just some of the wonderful things yet to come. These pictures you keep are so nice, but you really should take our advice. Happiness waits at Stuff Mart. All you need is lots more stuff. Happiness waits at Stuff Mart. Admittedly, I'm no huge fan. This echoes some some realities in our hearts, in my heart and yours. Happiness waits for you at Stuff Mart. This longing that you have waits for you there. You can buy enough to fill it. See, we've talked about these same realities before now in dealing with our neighbors in terms of the value of life sexuality and, and, and fidelity to our spouses. And today we're dealing with the same reality when it comes to our stuff, our things, our possessions. What place do they take in the heart? What is our view of stuff? I think that's a great question. I don't mean to imply that all possessions are useless. Scripture um, does give a sense in which private ownership is a real thing. The ownership of property, I would never argue that you don't need clothes, shelter, none of that. But what does the Scripture teach backing up a layer? What does it teach about property in the preceding chapter leading up to this? We read these words out of Exodus 19, beginning in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what God is speaking here. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you up on eagles' wings and brought you out to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine." God is saying, I claim you as my possession because all the earth is mine. Right after this, we're going we're gonna to sing this Psalm, Psalm 24 that opens like this. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The psalmist is making clear that the earth and everything in it belongs to God. Keep in the back of your mind floating around this question, what is my view of stuff? And then hear the word of God speaking to us about all the stuff of the earth, the stuff of creation, everything that, that we have as material possession. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Psalm 50 drills into that a little more. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God instituted the sacrificial system, and yet here he's telling Israel, "I don't need your dead animals." This is the way they measured their wealth, right? Goats and sheep and cattle and all that stuff, and you're offering it as, it as a sacrifice to God, and he says, "I don't need that." And then he explains why he doesn't need it. He says, "I own all of it. It's all mine." It doesn't belong to you. If I were hungry, I would not need to ask you for something to eat. I know not only the cattle that you have in your stalls, I know every bird that exists out there. I know them. Does that begin to change and shape our view of stuff? We see this most clearly in Genesis chapter 1. God creates all things. All things are his to command because he made it. It's all his. Everything is his. And he gives us a stewardship. Listen to these words, familiar words. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful. This is God to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant. And he goes on. And then he concludes, I have given you every green plant for food. This is a stewardship. God is saying, I made all this. And here, you be my stewards. You be my image bearers here. Shepherd and steward what God has given you. Everything belongs to God. He's graciously made us caretakers If all things belong to God and we're stewards of it, then stealing offends God really in two ways. Two ways. When we steal from others, we're denying what God has provided for us or will provide for us. We deny the power and glory of God. When we steal from others, we're denying that God has provided for us what we need. When we take something unjustly or tweak the balance a little bit in our favor in an unjust way, we're saying, God, what you've given me is not enough. Your glory in my things is not enough. I'm not satisfied. And in the second way, when we steal from others, we sin against God because we're removing what God has provided for them. In both cases, we're saying something about the provision of God. We're saying something about Him and His glory. In some sense, we see this unfold in the garden when Adam and Eve defy God. They deny His gracious provision. Here you have all this stuff. Everything in the garden is, is on limits and I want you to expand this garden out, covering the face of the earth. And at some point in defiance of God and the first commandment, they express that defiance. How? They steal from the only thing in the garden that's off limits, that belongs to God alone, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They take and they eat. Stealing. We put together the reality that all things belong to God, and God has given dominion to us over creation as stewards. Suddenly the eighth commandment should come to life. Again, stealing is much bigger than simply just taking from someone else this object. It's saying something about God who he is, what he's like. saying something about your neighbor. John Frame says simply, we should not sharply separate property rights from human rights. To steal someone's property is to take his inheritance and to assault his dignity and freedom. We're saying something about God, ourselves, and others when we do this saying something that's not true? How would it radically change our view of things, our material possessions, our houses, our cars, our furniture, our portfolios, our bank accounts, if we viewed all things as belonging to God? Would that shape our view of our stuff? If we thought first and foremost, hey, this is His... This is God's. I would not have it if if He did not give this to me. How would that radically shape our view of things? Does God need us? Does He need our stuff? Does He need our money? See, up there waiting, just... Man, if, if only they would just give, like then I could just, uh, man, then I could really do ministry. Do you know what? If God wanted all your money, he could take it today. He could take every penny you have today if he wanted it. He could take your house. He could take your car. He could take every possession. If God wants it, he'll take it. It's his. To view it any other way is wrong headed. It's not what scripture presents. This stuff is not ours. We're stewards of it. A couple of case studies. First, David, 2 Samuel 12. Stealing is is a lot bigger uh, than uh, than we think. David has sinned. He sinned against God with Bathsheba, having Uriah, her husband, killed. Nathan the prophet comes to him and he tells him a story. There's this wealthy man. He lives in town over here. He has lots of flocks and herds. In other words, that's key for, he's got a huge bank account. He's got plenty of stuff. And living over here in another part of town is this poor guy. He does not have much. But he scrimped and scraped and eventually bought himself a little lamb. He took this lamb in in his own house, raised this little lamb with his kids. Everybody's around the dinner table and you have the lamb over here. The lamb is going to eat too. He raised him up. They loved this this little lamb is one of their own. They didn't have much, but they had that. Well, then this rich man over here, he's, he's uh, this other part of town. He's got an important guest coming in. He's got a business dinner. He's got to do something to, to feed this important guest. He looks around. He's like, hey, I kind of like my, uh, my flocks the way they are. I want his lamb, the poor man's lamb. He takes it. And he kills it. And he serves his important guest at this important business dinner. He serves this poor man's lamb. How does that story strike you? This sense, even in telling it, this sense of gross injustice starts to rise up in me. And it certainly did in David. Because before, he Nathan barely finished the story and he was like, that man should die and he should be repaid fourfold according to the law of God and die for this crime. His head explodes. And here's the thing with theft. Nathan turns the whole thing around and says, you are that man. That's you. You're the rich guy. You're the one who has all this stuff. And yet you went... You went after what didn't belong to you. You're the one who has all these possessions and you went after the poor to exploit them for your own purposes. What have we been given by God? Listen, we live in an incredibly rich and blessed time in history What have we been given by God? Most of us know where we're going to get our next meal. We may have food in our pantry enough to last for weeks. Even if we can't make a run to the store, we're going to be fine for a long time. Do we see the absolute ingratitude in our lives when we seek to steal, defraud, cheat, To not love our neighbors with what we've been given. Instead, we're constantly on the take. Interestingly, a Barna survey, this is admittedly an old one from the 90s, uh, but it said this 90% of evangelical Christians say they never break the eighth commandment. Is that true? Again, consider it in its largest context that everything belongs to God and we're stewards. By not stewarding his stuff, his possessions correctly, we're in defiance of God. We're robbing from him. Are we off the hook? Another case study. The rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, you know the story. A rich man comes to Jesus Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds with the law. You've heard it said, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. In response, he's like, yeah, I'm good. All these I've kept since I was little. I'm good. And Jesus says this, and it utterly devastates him right at this area of the Eighth Commandment. Okay, go. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me he's utterly undone he goes away sad in his defiance of the eighth commandment and his defiance of seeing all his possessions cuz he's remember we're told the detail that he's a rich guy and what is his heart really treasuring And ultimately, this is a defiance of this commandment and the first commandment. The eighth commandment is so much bigger than not taking things from other in God's economy. It's about not blessing others with what we have. That's what this commandment is about. Jesus said it. It's about love. Blessing other people with the things that we have, with our stuff. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way I must promote my neighbor's good wherever I can and deal with him as I would like others to deal with me and to work faithfully so that I might be able to give to those in need. So, how are we doing with our stuff? I'm happy about this. I, I, I see a lot of you loving others well with what you have. I see you opening your homes, being kind to one another. Good job. If you have a home, that's what it's for. It's not just for the, the, the glory of you and your name. It's, your estate is not about you. It's about sharing with others, welcoming others, and this congregation does that in some beautiful ways, showing hospitality, being kind to one another. Typically when there's a need in this church, its members, its leaders are quick to go to that need and say, how can we help? I want to encourage that. Those of you doing that, keep doing it. In it, you honor the Lord. In it, his glory shines. Have you ever thought about that? Opening your home to a neighbor glorifies God. That in and of itself is a picture of what God has done with us. We were the outsiders and he said, hey, come on. I got room for you. I have food and drink for you. Keep going. But also let let this be a challenge. Let the Eighth Commandment challenge us to, to love others well with what we've been given. We're stewards of it. Ultimately, the estate belongs to God. It's not ours. How can we shepherd it to love others well? How are we doing with our stuff? I'm amazed that the world, even apart from Christ, figures out this reality. Bill Gates, as of 2017, one of the three richest men on the globe, Bill and Melinda Gates, their foundation had given away $50 billion. That was a B. 50 billion, and that was over two years ago. That's still going up. That's a a staggering reality, by the way. That's a lot of money to give away, and you look at the world, and you're like, why are you doing that? Well, listen, he was asked. February 2018, a, a letter from the foundation responded to that question, and he says this. First, it's meaningful work. And they go on in the letter to talk about how Them giving away their money, their stuff, provides meaning and happiness for their life. Isn't that interesting? It's exactly what God says is true about stuff. And people who who wouldn't darken the door of this place, who, who, who don't know and embrace the gospel, are figuring this out hey it's not in all the stuff that we can accumulate that is making us happy and giving us meaning it's what we give away to others that does that very thing in an article in the atlantic this week that came out the author asked an aging friend why he's continued on this hamster wheel of success year after year He says this, he concludes, the author concludes this way. They believe that at some point they will finally accumulate enough to feel truly successful, happy, and therefore ready to die. What place does stuff and money play in our lives? Some people are convinced, hey, if I stay on this rat rat wheel and work hard enough and run fast enough and chase, then one day I'll be happy. I can get off and die a happy person. Others over here saying, hey, if I give stuff away, if I give money away, then I'll find meaning and happiness. Stuff Mart, what we offer you in here, all this stuff, what we're really selling you is happiness. You see, the reality with stuff is people are looking for these things. We're looking for meaning and we're looking for happiness. Can the accumulation of wealth ever provide those things? Maybe a more targeted question is this our approach to life? Do we have a different grid that we're put here by God as stewards? Ephesians 4 applies the gospel like this. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands. Listen to the reason why. So that he may have something to share with those in need. Not stealing for the Christian isn't about polishing our halo and like, look, I haven't taken something that doesn't belong to me. I haven't stolen someone's car. I haven't defrauded anyone. It's not just about that. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him work hard so that what? He can love his neighbor. He can love those that he sees around him in need. How are we doing? <sighs> Lastly, the real question in This commandment is where do we find hope? Where do we find the true meaning, the true happiness, the true contentment that we seek? How can we ever hope to become generous people? We don't have much ourselves and we work day in and day out. We scrimp and we save for what we do have. Scripture has an answer. And it's this. It's God's covenant, God's covenant. God makes promises, promises to his people, and, and they go like this, hey, I'm going to give you a land, and in that land, you're not going to have any more enemies. In that land, you're going to be settled, and that's going to be your inheritance. And in that land, there's going to be a seed an heir that's going to be central to all of that place and there's going to be a blessing in that place that flows not just to Abraham but to to the whole world. That's God's covenant promise. He's talking about an inheritance made for you and me, me and do you know what that inheritance is? All of it is a person All of God's covenant promises are fulfilled in a person. Jesus Christ. It's in his presence that we find the satisfaction and happiness and joy and contentment that we seek. It's in Jesus Christ that we find the individual that all the covenant was about. The blessing that would flow through him to all the world. It's all in Jesus. We have an inheritance in Christ that is unfading. The Bible doesn't upend this embodied reality about life. It doesn't say, hey, all possessions are going to burn and they're going to go away and there's going to be just this disembodied reality. It doesn't say that. It says that it's all going to be made new. It's all going to be redeemed in Christ. 1 Peter 1, and we heard some of this read for us already that Peter is talking to a people who are dispossessed. He's talking to people who are exiles, spread all over the country because they're being persecuted. Christians are being persecuted for the name of Christ and they're spread out all over the place. And it's to those people who probably carry around their possessions in little sacks on their back with their whole family moving from place to place, looking for safety, looking for a home, looking for someone to protect them and love them. It's to them, he writes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Where are these people, these wanderers, these exiles... These immigrants, where do they find hope? A living hope in the person of Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. An inheritance. This is the the key to the Eighth Commandment is you and I have an inheritance in Christ, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. That will topple your view of possessions. Why are you on a, in a rat race to get all you can You have a full and glorious inheritance that is yours in Christ, waiting for you in heaven. Underneath our stealing and attempts to be happy with material possessions it is is a desire for something lasting. And to this immigrant people, Peter's saying, you have it in Jesus. And to Grace Presbyterian Church, With all our longings for stuff, he's telling us, you have an inheritance in Jesus Christ that's unfading and glorious. His resurrection provides for us. It's only in Christ that our view of material possessions will truly change. It's only in the gospel that these things will be upended in our lives and we can view our possessions not as that thing that fulfills us, but that thing that we can love others with. And thus fulfill what Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. God doesn't say stuff is unimportant or has no meaning, but what is revealed is the way we use our possessions has great meaning. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, do not store up treasures for yourself on earth. Why? It's going to fade. Moth and rust destroy where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, what? It's where your heart is also. If you really want to know the gauge, the temperature of your heart, Jesus has given us one way to do that. It's not the only way, but you want to take your heart's temperature, do so with your stuff. What do you treasure? What do you take great delight in? It's going to reveal a lot about your heart. A.W. Tozer explained, any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. He's talking about using our stuff to bless others. Could you imagine having all of your stuff, your bank account, your vehicles, your house, whatever you possess, touched with immortality? Put it to use in God's name. So where is our treasure? That's going to tell us where our heart is. Where is it? It's my hope and desire that it's Christ, Him crucified and risen, an unfading and unfailing inheritance waiting for us in heaven, utterly upending our view of our stuff. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. Lord, may we treasure your gospel above all things. Lord, may that define your gospel, define our view of our stuff. Of all the people in Shreveport and Bossier, may we be known as those who are most generous, most loving, open with what we've been given willing to love others because you have so loved us in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.